pray, shall we? Strong as a mighty rock, our refuge in the coming wrath. Our Father, we long that uh, you would be our refuge. As we think about this issue of repentance and faith, teach our hearts this morning, not so that we simply know things, but so that we repent and believe the gospel, that you might do a, a wonderful work in each and every one of us, that we might be able to walk out of here confident that you have chosen us and that you are going to do your refining work in us to the end of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we're in week three of a series of eight talks thinking about the order of salvation. And you've picked the best day to come, really. We're right in the middle of the heart of uh, the order of salvation today, the heart of Christianity, really. It is at the point from which everything else I'm going to say over the, the, the coming five weeks at springs. If you get this bit wrong, everything else is null and void. If you get this right, everything else that follows is yours in abundance. And today we're thinking about uh, two things, repentance and faith. Uh, you'll know Jesus began his ministry according to Mark chapter 1 uh, by declaring that the kingdom of God has come near. Uh, repent and believe the good news. We were thinking last week about uh, the gospel call. And this is Jesus making that call. He stands up before a crowd and says, repent and believe the gospel. Come on. In you come. Uh, repent and believe. And therefore my aim this morning is not simply that we understand what re- repentance and faith are. But that you actually repent and believe the gospel. Whether that's for the first time this morning, and I pray for some of us it might be, or whether it's for the hundredth time, the thousandth time, uh, it's hard to say that, it's a thousandth time. Uh, But nevertheless, I pray that's what's going to happen for all of us. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians, uh, as he speaks to the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, he says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Uh, Paul says, you must do this. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to do this. There is no salvation anywhere from the coming wrath except that you repent and believe in Christ. I've called this series The Glory of God in Saving Grace because we've been seeing in the last two weeks that it is God who saves us for his glory. And this week we come to the first of a couple of talks where we're going to think about what we have to do in response to that. God has chosen us, and God has called us, and given us the new birth, but but what are we going to do in response? And so I need to say a few words, because I know one of the questions hanging over from week one was, how does God's choice and ours fit together? That's not the point of this talk, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes on it, and then we'll move on, and you can come and talk to me afterwards if you want to chat more about this. God commands us to repent and believe. And uh, what we've seen in the last two weeks is that if you're uh, someone who God has chosen, you will repent and believe. Uh, He calls you, you have to do it because God has called you. And just in case we're tempted to boast about it, uh, the Bible makes clear we're only able to repent and believe because God gives us the gift of doing that. So again, the book of Acts talks about God granting people the ability to repent. Uh, Paul, Peter, they do their ministry hoping and praying that God will do a work in people so they can repent. 
Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 10 tells us that our faith is a gift from God so that no one may boast. Repentance and faith are things that God calls us to do and they're things that by the new birth that we saw last week, he enables us to do. He gives us the the demand to do it and the ability to do it. I was trying to think how to illustrate how these things go together. Uh, This is what I've come up with. Uh, Please bear with me. Quite a hard one for you to to perhaps follow if you've grown up in cosmopolitan London. But if you come back with me to uh, the wilds of East Anglia where I grew up, uh, you grew up eating English food. Stodgy, uh, lots of potatoes, meat, nothing fancy, gravy on everything. And you had no appetite for uh, fancy foreign foods. You know, nothing spicy, uh, no cheese more sophisticated than cheddar. Uh, My dad thought bananas were too spicy. That's how dull our house was. Okay. Then one day, a friend says, please come to my birthday party. We're going out for dinner at a Chinese restaurant. And you think, well, (laughs) I don't really want that. Maybe they'll do chips. That'll be fine. Chips with gravy. That'll uh, be just fine. I'm going to go along because it's my friend's party. And so you go and, and you're, you're sitting there before this wonderful array of uh, deep fried food and you think, well, I'll just try a bit of that and, and a bit of this. And you think, gosh, this is actually really nice. And you're hooked. You see, something's happened. You're the same person you were before in some sense, but you have had your desires completely changed. Now you will go out for a Chinese meal as often as you can do because it tastes great. At one single event, perhaps even against your will, the birthday party has caused you uh, to change your attitude entirely. And perhaps there are some here this morning who have come to church reluctantly. You've come because a a friend or a a family member has has dragged you in. It's like you've come to the restaurant against your will. You're just hoping to, to get through it. And yet if God works in you the new birth, you will suddenly have new tastes. A new desire for the things of God. You'll just begin to hmm, find that Christ is sweet. And his word is uh, more delicious than honey from the comb. And you will choose to repent and believe. And I pray that some of us, that that might be true for us today. That's the reality. Why do we need to know this? Let me tell you. God is choosing... Uh, he's making his call, it's a secret call, it comes through uh, the preaching of the gospel we saw last week, as I uh, demand you to to repent and believe, some of you might. Uh, Regeneration, the new birth, are all hidden things. They're things known only to God. And so the question comes, how do I know that I'm included? If God's choice is the priority here, how do I know that I'm in? And that's the point that Paul raises in verse 4. Take a look down with me. It is precisely the question Paul is uh, answering. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know that you're chosen. How? And that's what we're thinking about this morning. We're going to focus on verses 9 and 10, uh, where Paul gives uh, clear and glorious evidence of how it is that we can know that we're chosen by God. Let's look at that together. Verse, uh, we'll begin at the end of verse 8. Therefore, we need not say anything about this, your, your coming to faith, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell, that is, the other churches, 
They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is, if you like, Paul giving you the model of conversion. And really what I want to do for the next few minutes is observe two things about repentance that he says here and three things about faith. Each one gets uh, more, uh, more time, more space in other parts of the New Testament. But here Paul brings all these things together and gives us a glorious picture. And so I'm really going to just try and put these, these five things together, grounded here in, in 1 Thessalonians. And I want to ask you, and I want you to be thinking as we go through this, have you done these five things? Uh, this is Paul's evidence that they are chosen by God. And so if you've done these five things, you know you're a Christian. It'd be easy for for us, if we're regulars in church, to have done two or or three of these things. But perhaps not all five. We might not realise that there are these different elements involved. And so this could be quite a challenge for some of us. Perhaps all of us this morning. Paul has told us in Acts 20 that you must fully repent, fully believe. Of course, we're imperfect people and we we won't get this completely right. Some of you here I know haven't done those things and perhaps you know that you haven't done those things. Can I encourage you as you listen today to ask why not? Why haven't I done these things? What particularly is the sticking point for me? And And if you can't answer that, perhaps you need to turn and... Don't waste your life. It's a glorious thing to be part of God's people. Some of you will think you've done these things in advance, and as I go through them, you're going to think, well, gosh, I'm not sure that I actually have done all of these things. Gosh, does that make me not a Christian? You'll start to doubt yourself. Well, the good news is, if you repent and believe today, then it doesn't matter where you were yesterday. If you do these five things this morning, then you can be totally sure, can't you? And some of you will have repented and believed many times. Uh, you'll know we, we celebrated uh, 500 years of the Reformation uh, last October, 500 years from when Martin Luther nailed the first, his 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And the very first thing on his 95 Theses is this. He said, when the, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ called us to repent, he meant that all of life was to be one of repentance. I'm translating from, uh, paraphrasing from his Latin. And so our, our lives are not to be a one-off repenting and believing, but a fresh repenting and believing each day, each hour of each day. And so even if you have made the decision and done these things a hundred times, can I encourage you to do them again? Humble ourselves before God. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what I want for every one of us this morning. And the first step there on your handouts, the, the proof of uh, whether you have repented believed is this. Acknowledge that idolatry is horrible. We see this in verse 9 where Paul describes their previous way of life of the Thessalonians as idolatry. Now you turn to God from idols. An idol is anything that we love more than God or live for more than God. John Calvin says that the human heart is a factory of idols, it's a production line. The idols just keep coming and coming and you, know, you get rid of one of them and there's another one 
and another one where our hearts are full of love for things that are good things that we make ultimate things. That's idolatry. It's when we serve something as God that isn't God and therefore treat God as if he isn't God. It holds us in slavery. It's bondage to sin. And we are to see that idols are horrible. That's what Paul's referring to at the end of uh, verse 10 when he talks about uh, the coming wrath. He means that God hates idols. He hates idolatry, he's angry at it, and he will judge to eternal condemnation everyone who loves them more than him. Idolatry is horrible. That's how God sees it, that's how we are to see it. And so the first step to conversion is to be persuaded that idols that are not God should not be treated as God, and to do so is repugnant. And know that God will judge it. Are you persuaded? When someone loves their reputation more than God's reputation, when we love money more than God, when we idolise some aspect of our life or set our ambitions on those earthly things and ignore God, that is idolatry. It is not what we're made for. And it is horrible. But simply recognising idolatry as a bad thing is not enough. That's not repentance. Uh, There is a reaction, you see, we can have to uh, our sin of idolatry being uncovered that is not uh, right, or at least not enough. Uh, We can be embarrassed, even uh, ashamed. But our pain, you see, at at our idols being uncovered is not that uh, we've discovered how hateful it is, it's that we still love our idols and are just embarrassed that somebody else has found out about them. Socially awkward, isn't it? Absolutely in church to find out that you actually love something other than Jesus. And we get embarrassed. Perhaps that's why we come to church with our Sunday best faces on. You know, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you doing? Oh, great. And we never share because we don't want the master slip and for people to see what's really going on underneath. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul writes to the church in Corinth about a previous letter that he'd sent to them. Uh, He sent them a letter uh, rebuking them for all sorts of, uh, particularly sexual immorality in the church, but all sorts of other things going on. He had exposed their sin, and they were hurting. They They were in pain about it. And Paul says, you know, hurting you has hurt me. I don't want to do that. But verse 9 of chapter 7, he says this. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry or brought to grief or upset about it, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. See, their sorrow, their shame, their hurt didn't stop at grief. I can imagine being in the church as Paul's letter is read out and he's naming and shaming certain sins in the church. And gosh, I can imagine... It'd be pretty embarrassing. You can red flush, you know, hiding behind your, your Bible. Paul calls that worldly sorrow. And that's not enough. That's not repentance. But it led them to the next step as God intended. Uh, it's part, uh, B, one B on your handout. Turn from your idols. Did you notice Paul doesn't even call their grief, their sorrow, actual Repentance. 
Uh, he saves that for actually turning from the idols. That's what the Thessalonians did. Look, uh, they looked at their idols, they saw them for what they were, they saw their love for things that weren't God to be a horrible thing, uh, and they gave them up. They learned to hate their sin. They turned from them and chose a new direction of their lives. That's what repentance actually means. The Old Testament word means to turn around. To go in the opposite direction. To realise you're walking away from God and to turn around and go back the other way. My friends, God will accept you as you are. Whatever baggage you bring to him this morning, know that God will have you for one of his people. If you're prepared to leave Uh, your baggage at the foot of the cross. He will take you as you are, but he won't leave you as you are. He won't say, come as a sinner and remain in your sinful life. You must turn from it. You must learn to hate your sin. I love this verse in Isaiah 55. Please hear the call that God is making to us this morning. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Notice it's actions and uh, things in our hearts and minds. Let them turn to the Lord, that's the repentance idea, and he will have mercy on them. Turn to our God, uh, for he will freely pardon. Whatever the horrors in our hearts have been, put them down, learn to hate them, turn away from them, and God will freely pardon. Let me be... Uh, personal for a moment uh, by way of illustration of this every Christian has uh, idols Uh, Calvin was talking about Christians when he said the heart of the factory of idols Uh, you you take your baseball bat and you you smash one off the production line and there's just two more coming along behind it that you never saw were there Uh, and so uh, as you grow up as a Christian it's as though God uh, just exposes more and more of the cesspit of your own heart and anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time will know that uh, there's more there than they ever realised. God in his kindness doesn't show you all of your sin and all of your idols at your conversion. That would be overwhelming, I think. Well, God in his kindness has prepared me for this sermon this morning by exposing my idolatry to me this week. I received some uh, less than glowing feedback to my sermon last weekend, this week. It hurt a great deal to hear it, and I can't pretend that I didn't resist it. What hurt me, though, was not the, the feedback itself. I don't think I was being criticised for a lack of preparation or laziness or, or prayerlessness in my preparation. I just hadn't quite hit uh, the marks I was aiming for. It wasn't that there was sin in my preparation particularly. My struggle was really with myself in the way that I reacted to the feedback I got. It exposed something raw inside me. My pride was wounded and for a few hours on Monday I I struggled to to focus. I was wrestling with uh, what is it inside my own heart that meant that I couldn't hear uh, carefully and clearly what was being said. And because I'm in the middle of teaching this series, by God's grace, I sat down and began to think through the order of salvation and and trying to apply each part to this uh, particular wrestling in my own heart. And I got to repentance and faith. And God opened my eyes to see that I hadn't preached that sermon for his glory, but my own. At least I hadn't completely preached the sermon for him. I like the praise of men. I like to to get to the end of the service and someone to say to me, that was really helpful. I, I really appreciated how you said that. 
I like people to speak well of me. I find it hard to hear criticism. I sought glory for myself in my ministry. And I'm telling you this despite the fact that it's quite awkward for me. This is, this is my, my socially embarrassing moment, exposing my heart as an exercise in killing my pride by humbling myself before you all this morning and pleading with you, please don't flatter me anymore. It's not good for me. It, 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 it puffs me up. If anything I say is helpful to you, please give glory to God. It's his word, not mine. And insofar as I've done the job I'm supposed to do in preaching it, uh, please give glory to him. Uh, React to God's word the way you're supposed to, by living a God-honouring life. And if you must be critical, please be gentle. It'll take some time to kill the idol. And now let me turn the lens on you. I wonder, what are your great struggles? Where does your personal pride stop you from exposing your heart to your your nearest and dearest? Whether whether it's uh, pride or or lust or, or anger, what is the very personal, very particular struggle that you have at the moment that you'd rather nobody knew about, that you battle with by yourself because you will not feel that social stigma? Will you admit it to yourself? Will you hate your sin enough to share it with a friend? I'm not asking you to stand up the front here and give you the mic and ask you to tell everybody what's going on in your hearts. But would you talk to someone? Would you say, I've come to hate this sin that has been dogging me for years? Would you pray with me? Would would you hold me to account? Would you help me change my ways? I want to put it to death. I want to turn from it. I want to put it down and hate it and never come near it again. That is repentance. Uh, That is hard. And perhaps for some of us it's something we've never really truly done. Let me encourage you to do it today. But we're only halfway there. We're called to repentance and faith. And faith, if you like, is the thing that is the engine room of Christianity. You have to have repentance. You can't, uh, t- you can't be going for God and going away from God at the same time. We can't be those split people. You have to have repentance. But faith is the engine room of every good thing that we're, we're given, as we'll see next week. And faith has three parts. The first is this, believing that the gospel is true. So please notice the things that Paul tells us the Thessalonians have come to believe. At first, that Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. Our idolatry, our hearts that love things other than God, leave us condemned. God's wrath is coming on the world. He is going to send to hell everybody who does not trust in Jesus. But he has also sent Jesus into the world to rescue us. To bear that judgment in our place. So that we can be free people. Uh, He uh, tells us that Jesus died in history and was raised from the dead. Uh, Concrete, uh, essential historical events, the heart of Christianity, uh, those things, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, are are the things that you have to believe to be a Christian. There's a whole bunch of other things that would be nice to know. Those are the things you have to know to be a Christian. 
Uh, Notice he talks about Jesus coming back from heaven. Verse 10, they wait for his son from heaven. There's a day of judgment coming, brothers and sisters. Which the Christian can look forward to eagerly, because it is the day when we get rid of all our idolatry and are made perfect like Christ. We've sung about that already. And we have nothing to fear from God's wrath if we are repentant and faithful people. More on that next week when we get to justification. That is to say, faith is knowing some things about God. Knowing some things about Jesus and what he's done that are true historical things. And saying, yes, I believe that Jesus is God who came into the world. Yes, I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he rose again. My penalty is paid. And he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And if you believe those things are true, you've at least achieved this point of faith. And if you choose not to believe it, well, you have no excuse because I've just explained it to you. But knowing facts is not enough. The devil knows the facts and he hates them. Knowing some things to be true is not enough. At 1D, you have to turn to God yourself. When the Thessalonians turned from their idols, they did so to fix their love on something different. On someone different. They turned to God from idols. A new love, a new orientation from rebellion to the relationship they were made for. The Christian is someone who not only knows that this is what you have to do, but has actually done it personally decided not simply that Jesus had died for his people in general but that he has died for me personally and I'm going to turn uh, towards him but even that is not enough and perhaps that's where the talk is going to bite for many of us as Christians here this morning Uh, I'd encourage you later to get out your, your Bibles and read Hebrews chapter 11 There we're told, verse 1, that faith is believing unseen but certain realities. Faith is seeing with the eyes of faith and believing in the new creation, for example. The return of Christ, as in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 here. But it leads to something extraordinary. 1E, it leads us to lean into God. Faith means believing into. It means trusting. It means living as though the thing you say is true is actually really true. Which is to say, if you you trust me, if you say, Ash, I trust you, you're you're a trustworthy person, therefore I'm going to actually live as though what you're saying is true. Now we do this all the time. Let me take these things with me. If I climb up here onto the stage for a moment, okay, good. This illustration is going to work. And I can jump up and down. Okay. I am trusting that this stage is going to bear my weight. Not in considerable weight as it, come, as, it, as it happens. I'm acting as though the thing that I, I know is true, the stage is built for people heavier than me. I'm actually acting on that. I'm actually making a decision to, to live as though it's true. You're doing the same thing with the chairs you're sitting on, by the way. Um, I don't suppose any of you just gently check to make sure the chair would bear your weight when you sat down. You've got lots of experience of chairs. Very few of you have chairs collapse under you and you think, well, that's probably okay then. I can trust the furniture. We do this all the time. 
A Christian is someone who has personally decided and then acted. That's what Paul says here, isn't it? These uh, fledgling Christians, he's been amongst them for three weeks preaching, and then he's been chased out of town. He's, he's run away, and he's written this letter to them to say, you are real Christians. We know God has chosen you because of these things. And notice what they do. They are waiting for his son from heaven, verse 10. They're living in the expectation that Jesus is going to come back right now, and it shapes the way they see the world. They have turned to God from idols to do what? To serve the living and true God. See, faith is active. It takes action on the basis that God is trustworthy and the things that he say are true. That's what Hebrews 11 is talking about. It tells us of of Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah and on and on and on. People who did extraordinary things because the gospel was true and they believed it. And it has led to generation after generation of uh, Christians who've largely been forgotten by us, whose names haven't gone down in history as great people, who've led uh, ordinary lives in no less an extraordinary way because they've lived as though the gospel were true. That is repentance and faith. As I've said at the beginning, every other blessing in the Christian life flows out from these these two things, these five steps... They are five steps that mark out a Christian. If you have done these five things, or if you do these five things for the first time this morning, know that you are a Christian. And that is a good place to be. And if you have done these things, then know this, you are bound to Christ. We'll think about this more next week, but I should raise it here because we call this faith union. You'll see this all over the New Testament in the phrase in Christ or with Christ, particularly in Paul's letters, it's everywhere. The assumption that when you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit binds you to Christ, seated in the heavenly realms. You are as though you're meshed together, you and Christ. So much so that you are seated with him in the heavenly realms if you're a Christian here this morning. The true spiritual reality of your life is that you're seated with Christ, not here. Okay? And because we're bound to Christ, and Luther used this idea of a marriage, you know, when, uh, when, when you get married, one uh, brings, brings their debt and the other person brings their wealth, and you put the two things together and you own each other's good and bad side, right? Well, when you become a Christian, uh, Jesus owns your bad side, all of your sins, all of your debt. You own Christ's perfect life. There's, a, there's the thing bound together so that Christ can rightly be punished on your behalf. And you can rightly be treated as a child of God who has never sinned. We'll think much more about that next week when we come to justification. But that is the heart of it. If you are a Christian, you are bound up to Christ. You have union with Christ by faith. Then everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. And really that's all we're looking at for the next five weeks in this series. Our justification, our adoption into his family are being set apart for God as sanctified people, holy to him, precious in his sight. As we think about our persevering in faith, becoming more like Jesus, and in the end becoming exactly like Jesus, our glorification. As we think about these things, they are the outflow 
of this one, this one doctrine. If we get our faith right, everything else that comes in this series is yours. Which means that the next few weeks will be comforting for us and encouraging for us personally as individuals if we actually press this passage on ourselves, press it on our hearts. See, it's easy for churchy people to know that sin is a bad thing. Perhaps even be embarrassed when our sin becomes public. So much so that we, we don't talk about our sin, do we? We put on a brave Sunday face and, and we all pretend that we're doing great, thanks very much. But you see, that is not hatred of sin. But hatred of social awkwardness. And we do social awkwardness really well in this country. And so I've tried to model for you today something of what it's going to take. To talk to someone, be honest about something you're struggling with, something that's not going away anytime soon, I'm not asking you to tell everybody, but I wonder if you would be prepared to talk to somebody about your sin this morning. Or make a coffee date with a friend and say, look, perhaps now's not quite the right time, but I'd love to chat to you this week about something I'm struggling with. A sin that you want to see dead. And then act accordingly. God has given us one another precisely to that end, brothers and sisters. To pray, to hold each other accountable. If we're going to hate sin and love righteousness, then we must not let our pride get in the way. Which is the chief of all sins. And the one from which all our other sins grow. And finally, having repented, have you trusted Christ for yourself? Do you grasp what he has done? What he offers you? Have you claimed it for yourself? Grabbing onto Christ as your personal saviour and lord. And then have you leaned into him? As you turn from idols, from your pet sins that divide you from uh, divide your heart between him and, and other things and, and rob you of your joy, do you see the alternative path? Let me end with this. Nothing matters more than being right with God. If you have repented and believed, then you can rejoice this morning that you are a Christian and that Christ will keep you to the end. But nevertheless, will you continue with him? Will you choose to hate sin enough to want your idols dead? Would you make your choices this week? I wonder whether you'll ask that question. As you make choices, will you step out of yourself for a moment as you're, you're making your choices about uh, all sorts of things, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, what you think about when nobody else is around. And just step back from that and say, what does this show about my priorities? What, what do I really care about? What, is, what do you actually love? And dig down until you find the things that are really taking your heart. What's it going to look like for you to lean into Christ by faith with the things that really matter to you? What are you what's it going to look like to live as if the gospel were really true for you this week? And let's pray for God to get work in and through us. Our loving Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you again, knowing that our hearts are a toxic mix of uh, love for things that shouldn't be loved, uh, loving too much things that are lovely, and not loving you as we should. Please uh, turn every heart here from our sin, 
to hate it a bit more this morning, to uh, see your beauty, the glory of the Lord Jesus dying for us. And I pray for every one of us that we would own him for ourselves this morning, that you would not let any one of us walk out of here without uh, him taking possession of our hearts. And Lord, uh, cause every one of us, whether we've been Christians for 30 seconds or for 30 years, to lean into him more, to know that he is returning, to know that he is our saviour and desires to be our Lord in every area, that we can trust that your ways are the best ways and walk in your uh, footsteps. Now, Father, as you do this work, it calls us to be humble enough to open our hearts to one another. Help us to be a church that really knows each other, loves each other, prays for each other, holds each other to account, that we might grow up to full maturity together. To the glory of your name. Amen. Let's sing as a prayer.